Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online. Also, those of you who are uh, gathered together here at Central Campus. It almost feels like pre-COVID. Almost. Anyways, awesome. But anyways, uh, just really glad to have you here at Central Campus, along with those of you who are meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, Bearspaw, Bridgeland, and South Calgary. With this being Valentine's weekend, I'm uh, reminded of a series of cartoons that someone sent me focusing on communication and marriage entitled, Why We'll Never Understand Each Other. And uh, one cartoon depicts a wife. Uh, she's in bed and she is very sick. And her husband is talking to her and this is what she hears him say. Honey, you don't expect me to take care of the kids, clean the house, and make dinner, do you? That's what she thought she heard him say. What he actually said is this. Are you feeling any better yet, dear? <laughs> Another cartoon depicts the two of them on a couch holding hands. She's, taking, she's talking to him and and this is what he hears her say. Honey, why don't you put your head in a vice and I'll turn the handle until you pass out. That's what he thought she said. What she actually said was, honey, why don't we turn the TV off and just talk? <laughs> we tend to have pretty selective hearing, don't we? Uh, which is one of the reasons that we often don't get along. The fact is our homes, our workplaces, our communities, and even our churches are often filled with conflict. When I was a child, I remember witnessing a lot of conflict uh, between my parents, and I often wondered, why can't people just get along? What is there about us as humans that leads to so much strife, division, conflict, hurt, and bitterness. Well, the Bible identifies the heart of the problem to be sin and selfishness. By nature, we tend to put our interests ahead of the interests of others, which hurts relationships rather than heals them. And yet, even though we're inclined to be self-centered and, and to hurt one another, I believe there's a desire within every person to be reconciled with those that they are estranged from. Oh, there are those who get great satisfaction coddling and nursing their anger and their resentment. And some even go to their graves with them. But my observation is that most people long for reconciliation. In fact, there are few experiences in life that have moved me more than seeing two people who were enemies, who hadn't spoken for years, one of them reach out to the other and sincerely choose to forgive the other, put the past behind and to reconcile with one another. But as special as this is, nothing blesses me more than when I witness a person get right with God. The Bible teaches when a person is reconciled to God, and begins a friendship with God, that the angels rejoice and a huge party breaks out in heaven. While the fifth chapter of Romans is written with that kind of spirit in mind, 
a spirit of celebration and joy. In the first four chapters that we've already looked at, the Apostle Paul explains that we are all sinners and therefore we're spiritually separated from God. In addition, we find ourselves under the wrath of God and facing the judgment of God. And the bad news is, is that we can't work hard enough. We can't be religious and, or good enough to save ourselves from this deadly condition. We can't resurrect ourselves spiritually. We need a miracle. And the good news is, Jesus came to earth to be that miracle, to make a way for us to become a friend of God. Out of love for us, he came and he died in our place, taking upon himself all the moral debt that was on our account. When we put our faith in him, all of our sins and our regrets are placed on him and his perfect righteousness is placed on us, making us righteous and acceptable to God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him referring to Christ, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And please note this, when God raised Christ from the dead, he was declaring through Christ's resurrection that Jesus' sacrificial death not only paid for our sins, but that his wrath and his justice was satisfied. Well, having spelled out the gospel and how to be justified by faith, we come now to chapter 5, where Paul narrows his focus to those who are believers, those who've been justified. Notice in verse 1 he writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. In the first 11 verses, he talks about the joy of justification, but how our lives are changed, how our lives are blessed, because Jesus made a way for us to become a friend of God. In this message, we're going to look at just the first two verses. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me, if you're able, and join me in reading our scripture lesson today. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Our Heavenly Father, again, we just thank you for your word and its instructions to our lives. And I pray, Lord, that right now we would just focus on what you want to say to us, that our hands would be open to you, Lord, to receive what, what it is you want to say to us. And then, you, Lord, you'd give us the courage to respond to what it is you're calling us to do and what it is you're calling us to be. For I pray it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as I indicated, in this passage, Paul spells out some of the benefits or some of the blessings of justification. The first is this, we have peace with God. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, 
we have peace with God. Those of us who were born in Canada can't fully appreciate the value of peace because we've never experienced war or what war can do to you the way some families in our church have experienced it, families who have immigrated to Canada from war-torn countries. A number of years ago, our family enjoyed a meal with two other families who grew up and lived in a Middle Eastern country that for years was constantly at war. They described how they lived in fear daily. They would leave their home only when it was absolutely necessary. They couldn't walk down the street without fearing for their lives because they never knew if the person who was approaching them was an enemy or a friend. They talked about high-powered military aircraft and vehicles and machine gun fire being commonplace. And there were other times that missiles would rain down and they would be cowering in a makeshift shelter. Can you imagine living like that day after day? Well, that is what war is like. But how different it is when peace comes. I wasn't born yet when the Second World War came to an end. But historians tell us when news broke out that the war was over, people all over the world poured out into the streets. The beaches, the streets, the parks suddenly were full of people laughing and hugging and, and, and just having a great time celebrating the fact that the war was over. Well, church, that is a picture of what happens inside of us when we understand and embrace the truth that we have been justified by faith. The war is over. We are now at peace with God. We now belong to his family. His wrath is no longer directed at us because remember, Jesus took God's wrath upon himself when he was on the cross. We've been set free. And the outcome for us is genuine peace. Some of you come from backgrounds where you were taught that your relationship with God is dependent on how well you perform, how good you are. And you know all about the toll this can take on your relationship with God and your sense of peace. I mean, imagine trying to have a close relationship with someone who has a clipboard, as it were, and is always recording your good and your bad behavior. One day you're feeling like you're in pretty good terms with God. You're headed for heaven because you've been pretty good. But the next day you blow it big time, and now you're convinced you're in God's doghouse, and you're destined for hell. The battle never ends. There's this constant pressure to perform, the fear of not measuring up and falling under the condemnation of God. I remember enduring this battle for years when I was a teen. I envisioned God as a heavenly policeman with a big stick, always watching me, just ready to punish me the minute I stepped out of line. When I put my trust in him, what joy and peace flooded my heart when I realized that in the spiritual realm, remember we live in two realms, the spiritual realm and the earthly realm. But when I realized that in the spiritual realm, 
God was no longer my judge, but he was now my loving heavenly father. Now make no mistake, as our heavenly father, he still disciplines us. I mean, that is what true love does. A loving father will do anything he can to stop his son or daughter from hurting themselves or from hurting others. A loving father not only disciplines, but he also prunes in the same way that a gardener prunes an apple tree, for example, because he wants to see his children grow and become all that they were created to be. But as his redeemed children, justified by faith, we no longer fall under his wrath. When I finally understood that, I experienced incredible peace and joy with him. The fear, whether I was right with God, the, the worry, whether I'd done enough to earn God's favor, was over. The war was over. Now I serve the Lord, not because I feel I have to or else. No, I serve the Lord because I simply love him and I want to serve him because I believe his church and his kingdom mission really matters. And also because I believe to the core of my being that when I live life his way rather than my own way, I will know God more personally and more intimately, and I'm going to experience his best for my life. This is the peace that God wants for all of us. And the wonderful thing is, once we have peace with God, we experience the peace of God within us, which begins to spill over into all of our relationships. When you genuinely are at peace with God, it's not going to be very long that you're going to look at your spouse and you're going to say, you know what? I want to be at peace with you too. I want our marriage to be all that God wants it to be. And then you're going to want peace with your children and your parents and your friends. And the Spirit of God brings about a spirit of reconciliation. And then one day you say, why am I fighting with how God wired me up? Why am I resisting using the talents and the gifts that God gave me? Why am I trying to be someone else rather than the person God made me to be? And by his grace, step by step, you make a decision to accept and celebrate the way that he made you. And one day you say, God, here I am. My hands are open to you. I recognize that it's not about me and my agenda. No, it's about you and your eternal agenda. And so I'm surrendering my pride to you. I'm surrendering my insecurity, my fear of failure, my fear of rejection, my feelings of inadequacy. I'm surrendering it all to you. I don't care who gets the credit. I don't care if I don't look impressive. I don't care if I make a great impression or if some people would think I'm a fool. Just use me, Lord, to make a difference wherever it is you need me. 
And not only does the peace of God, which passes all human understanding, flood your heart, but through your faithfulness, a little bit of God's kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the first blessing. Amen. That's the first blessing of our justification by faith. We have peace with God. The second blessing of our justification is that we have access to God. Again, look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. The word access means to bring forward. It's like you introducing one friend to another. The Romans understood this word. In that day, you didn't just walk into Caesar's palace and announce that you were just dropping by for a little chat and some tea and cookies. No, only a few close people to Caesar um, had access to him. And if you wanted to see him, you needed someone close to him to introduce you to him. The Jews understood this as well. When Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God, their relationship with God was fractured. And God removed them from paradise, removed them from the Garden of Eden that he had established for them. And from then on, the people no longer had immediate access to the presence of God. In the temple, there was the Holy of Holies that no person could enter other than the high priest. And he could only enter um, that, uh, the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. People could draw near to God, but no one was allowed direct access into his presence except the high priest. Now, there was a massive curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the holy place, which had several folds and layers and was far more difficult to destroy than the huge wooden doors used in those days. And the curtain said to the people, you can't have direct access to God except through a priest. However, all that changed when Jesus died. He broke down all the barriers. Luke 23, verse 45, describes this entire thing and tells us that when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, and in so doing, God was saying, the sin of man was now atoned for, and the barrier between God and man was removed. We now have access to God by the grace of justification. Now, I trust you understand that there is no believer on this planet, no pastor, no Christian celebrity, no one on, the, on our earth that has a better connection to God than you are capable of having. You see, Satan loves to keep Christians in the dark about this truth. He likes to convince people that they aren't worthy to approach God, that they aren't worthy to pray or to ask God for anything. Friends, hear me. 
we have direct access to God, not because we deserve to have access or because we have somehow earned the right to have access. No, each and every one of us has access to God only because of what the Lord Jesus has done for us by his grace on the cross. And so you can speak directly to God at any time, anywhere. And your concerns are listened to directly and personally by God with as much intensity and care as he would listen to someone that you think is more spiritual than you are. When you're driving, you can turn your car into a sanctuary and speak directly to your heavenly father with your eyes open, of course. Or you can shout, your praise and your adoration to him through song. When you're at home doing ironing and washing dishes like all good husbands do, you can say, you know what? I am going to turn this sink into a sanctuary right now. And I'm going to pray directly to the Lord. Hebrews 4, 16 says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. The first blessing of justification is we have peace with God. The second is we have access to God. The third blessing we have is the hope of being with God in heaven. Look at verse 2. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Now, the word hope that's used here is not wishful thinking, like, you know, I hope that, you know, the flames win, or I, I hope that we have cheesecake for dessert. No, the Bible, in the Bible, hope is a confident expectation of something that God has actually promised. It's actually a guarantee. The problem is we just don't have it yet. It's yet in the future. Whereas finding peace with God deals with our past and having access to God deals with our present, boasting or rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God deals with our future. That time when we will be with the Lord in all of his glory in heaven. Former CEO of Apple Corporation, Steve Jobs. He died of pancreatic cancer a little over 10 years ago. Sometime after his cancer diagnosis, he said this in a commencement speech that he gave at Stanford University. He said, no one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. So let me ask you, have you ever wondered why that is? Have you ever wondered why heaven has so little appeal to most people today? Well, I'm sure there's many answers, but in his book on heaven, Randy Elkhorn says one of the biggest reasons is people have this idea that heaven's going to be incredibly boring. He writes, this is one of the greatest lies of our arch enemy, Satan, the father of lies. He says, Satan doesn't need to convince us that, that heaven doesn't exist. 
You know, all he needs to do is to convince us that heaven's a boring place. Now, if we believe this lie, we'll be robbed of our joy and our anticipation of heaven. And it's going to affect our lives in a great way. We'll get totally fixated on this life. I've got this life and that's it. And we're going to put, as a result, incredible pressure, not only on ourselves, but also on other people around us to do it all, to experience it all, to accomplish it all, to be successful, to impress others, to make my mark. Because after all, this life is all there is. Now, sadly, many people live as if this life is their only hope. And that is why there is so much disappointment. There is so much restlessness and discontentment in our culture. You see, if we think that this life is all that there is, and all there is isn't enough, we feel cheated. We feel bitter, angry, frustrated. Life rarely matches our expectations. And if we place all of our hopes, dreams, ambitions in our work, in our success, our possessions, or even in our loved ones, we will be gravely disappointed because one day we're going to have to say goodbye to it all, including those that we love. 1 Corinthians 15 the Apostle Paul says this, if our, if our hope is only in the temporary things of this life, we are people to be pitied. Now, we don't like to think about that, do we? But it's the truth. Life will disappoint us, not only because we're going to have to leave it all behind, but also because we were made for so much more. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has set eternity in the human heart. Oxford professor and author C.S. Lewis wrote, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Church, here's the thing. Even though this world is not and will not be all that we hope it to be, our eternal home with God in heaven will be beyond our highest hopes and dreams. And we need to believe that. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And what that verse is essentially saying is this. Think of that incredibly special day or week or that moment in time when you experienced something so spectacular, so awe-inspiring. You wish that that day, that moment in time um, would last forever. When you found yourself thinking, man, Life doesn't get any better than this. Can you remember one of those times? Well, what Paul says here essentially is heaven will be infinitely and indescribably better than that. 
anything you can imagine will fall far short of what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, I could give an entire sermon on the topic of heaven and remind us from the scriptures how glorious and beautiful heaven will be. I could remind us that in heaven we're going to receive new bodies, immortal bodies, suited for an eternal existence, like the glorified body Jesus had after his resurrection. I could remind us that heaven's going to be a place where families and friends who died in the Lord are going to be reunited, and we're going to experience a depth of community there unlike anything that we've experienced on this planet. No more loneliness, no more isolation, no more misunderstanding, no more feeling like you're not wanted or you're unworthy. None of it. I could remind us that while heaven will be a place of rest, it will also be a place of discovery. We'll never get bored in heaven, folks. We will continue to learn and grow in heaven and have all of eternity to explore the mysteries of God. We're going to engage in productive work that inspires and deeply satisfies us. I could remind us also that we're going to be experience true joy in heaven. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. But in light of our scripture lesson today here in Romans 5, I want to give special attention to the fact that when we get to heaven, we're going to be changed. We're going to receive a new nature. Revelation 21, verse 27 says, Nothing impure will ever enter heaven. You see, God's holy. He's pure. He's righteous. And therefore, we need to be pure and righteous as well in order to enter heaven. And that is exactly Paul's point here in Romans 5. Notice he talks about our hope in the glory of God. You ever wonder what, what does glory of God mean? Well, the glory of God is the perfect holy character of God. Romans 3.23. Some of you, I'm sure, have it memorized. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. The perfect character of God. On our own, without God's grace, we are not worthy to enter his presence in heaven. But notice what Romans 3.23 says in its entirety. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in the spiritual realm, you are made righteous and pure in God's sight. Not because you are perfect and righteous in this life or in the earthly realm, but because you are in Christ and he is perfect and righteous. And that is our hope, writes Paul. You know, I've been a Christian for over 50 years. 
And sometimes I'm so disappointed that after all of these years, I still struggle with motives and with attitudes and behaviors that are not pleasing to God. It can be discouraging because I long to be done with all of these things that steal my joy, that hurt other people and keep me from God's best for me. And perhaps you can relate. Well, here's the thing. God promises those of us who are in Christ that a day is coming when Jesus will come in all of his glory and majesty and we will not only see him, but we will be changed. Our nature will be changed and we will be like him. We will be glorified and our struggle with sin will be over. Sin will be totally removed from the community of heaven. Look at what 1 John chapter 3 says about this. The Apostle John writes, But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And what God is saying in this passage is no matter how hard this world gets, no matter how difficult or unfair your life is, no matter how hopeless it may seem to you, by God's grace, God says to us, you are my masterpiece. And I promise you, your future in Christ is amazing and magnificent. Not on the basis of your performance, on the basis of your goodness here on earth, but on the basis of the fact that you have been justified by faith in Christ. Church, these are three reasons we can rejoice today. Because we've been justified through faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. We have access to God. And we have the hope of being with God in heaven. To him be all the glory. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'll just close with this. John Stott writes, in light of God's amazing grace, we should be the most positive people in the world. We cannot mooch around the place with a drooping, hangdog expression. We cannot drag our way through life moaning and groaning. We cannot always be looking on the dark side of everything as negative prophets of doom. No, we exult in God and his righteousness. Then every part of our life becomes suffused with glory. Christian worship becomes a joyful celebration of God and Christian living, a joyful service of God. So come now, let us celebrate the goodness and the grace of our God. And before we do, I need to ask, is there anyone here experiencing a war within and you want peace with God 
Is there anyone here who isn't sure where you'd be moments after you die? Is there anyone here who wants to know this Jesus that I've been talking about and put your trust in him? Jesus came and he died to make a way for you and me to become a friend of God. And you can begin that relationship right now just by reaching out to him through a simple prayer of faith in which you acknowledge your need of him. You acknowledge your sin. You ask him to forgive you of your sins and your regrets and you invite him to come into your life. I encourage you to do that right now, just right where you're sitting in the intimacy of your own heart before him. And after the service, if you've reached out to him, if you said yes to him, please approach one of the prayer partners who will make their way up to the front here. We'd love to pray with you, love to pray for you. If you're online, just let the online prayer partners know through the chat line. So let's prepare our hearts now to gather at the Lord's table, shall we? And let's ask that question. Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you calling me to do about it? 